Hey Spookies, I wanted to make this Halloween season a little more interesting, so I'm letting listeners of Rick or Treat Horrorcast select my Halloween costume. There are four options to choose from. Pearl, Dr. Loomis, Pazuzu, and Harry Warden. Cast your vote at Rick or Treat Horrorcast's YouTube channel under the community section. Voting ends at midnight on Tuesday, October 3rd, which is my birthday and the one-year anniversary of the podcast. I can't wait to see what you all decide for me to wear on Halloween night. I hope you have a wonderful and spooky Halloween season. Now, let's go rick-or-treating. Spookies, and welcome to Rick or Treat Horrorcast, hosted by yours, Ghoulie, Ricky J. Duarte. My guest this week is a return guest, a friend of the pod. Armando Munoz, also known as Pervula, is a writer, filmmaker, DJ, and all-around talented artist. His books include Hoarder, Turkey Day, Turkey Kitchen, My Bloody Valentine, the novel, and the upcoming Silent Night, Deadly Night, the novel. As a filmmaker, he's written and directed the shorts The Killer Crapper, Pervula, Mime After Midnight, The Terrible Old Tran, and Panty Kill. He also performs as DJ Pervula, currently spinning every other week at a digital dance club, Dance Darklings. He's also the winner of the WTF Award at Elvira's Horror Hunt in 2012. Now, some might also call him a person of easy virtue, a purveyor of paltritude. A one-woman Sodom and Gomorrah, if you will. A slimy, slithering succubus, a concubine, a streetwalker, a tramp, a slut, a cheap whore! Welcome to the show, Armando Munoz. Oh, I didn't realize I was being guest hosted by Chastity Pariah today. (laughs) (laughs) I just want everyone to know I didn't mean any of those things I just said about you, unless they're actually true. Oh, darn. Actually, it's all true, everyone. (laughs) I'll use it to my benefit. That's what I thought. And same goes for me. Armando, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. For newer listeners, Armando appeared on my My Bloody Valentine episode earlier this year, along with one of his collaborators, Anthony Massey, talking about his novelization of the classic slasher film, My Bloody Valentine. If you want to hear all about that, go back and listen to it after this. But Armando has a really exciting new project coming up. That adaptation was so well received. You are now about to release a novelization of Silent Night, Deadly Night. Can you tell us all about that? Yes, I'm very excited to be a part of the Silent Night, Deadly Night project. Um, It was actually a project that was discussed prior to My Bloody Valentine. So in a way, I had a much longer lead in time to it than I did on My Bloody Valentine. So I'd been contemplating this book for for quite a while and um very glad that we're finally gonna have it out for this christmas it's it's pretty incredible especially the same year that my bloody valentine 
came out. So I'm I'm very excited to have this be it coming at the end of the year. That's two incredibly epic adaptations in the same year. You must be really, really proud. Oh, very much so. Like, uh, again, both films are favorites of mine. So, of course, it's uh, easy to um, plug into the worlds of them. And that's a big part of the fun of doing these novelizations. For half a year or so, I get to basically live in the environments of my favorite films. I get to know everybody there. I get to know, I get to see everything behind the scenes and and it's so immersive and it's wonderful. It's quite an experience. I don't really know how to <laughs> express the joy of getting to live your favorite films and your favorite stories and mythologies like so immense, just so deeply. Like it's like, when you go to a, a theme park like Universal's Halloween Horror Nights and you go on a very detailed maze of these favorite movies, but it's like being stuck in one of those mazes for like half a year. You are simply there. It consumes my every part of my day and night to um, get to live in these worlds. That's what the, the novelizations are. They... Um, they allow me to live there and report back on everything I witnessed and saw. And it's, it's such an exciting and thrilling journey, both for my bloody Valentine and silent night, deadly night. They were fully immersive journeys for me. It's so apparent that this time that you spend in these incredibly iconic stories uh, is, is enjoyed and, and you are passionate about it. You created such a expanded universe of Valentine Bluffs in My Bloody Valentine, and I, I really cannot wait to see what you do with Silent Night, Deadly Night. What were some of the exciting kind of things that you discovered about that film as you got to know its characters and the world that it exists in? Well, with Silent Night, Deadly Night, there was, um, of course, I'm going off of the original screenplay um, kind of as the base of it all. And with, you know, the case of My Bloody Valentine, there were things in the script for um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, which was actually written as under the title Sleigh Ride. And so I was basically working off of the uh, Sleigh Ride screenplay by Michael Hickey. And it was, um, it's a pretty straightforward adaptation, much more so than my Bloody Valentine was so far as the films resembling the screenplays. With My Bloody Valentine, I was shocked by dozens of scenes that were not in the movie and subplots and a completely different order of events. And so My Bloody Valentine was definitely much more of a puzzle. But with Silent Night, Deadly Night, it was fairly complete. However, there were some things in the screenplay of Sleigh Ride that did not make it to the film. And they were just very nice touches and moments that I was able to incorporate back into the uh, novelization. But that said, even in the completed screenplay state, Silent Night, Deadly Night is brief. There's just no way around it. It, it very much goes from major traumatic incident to major traumatic incident and you don't get a lot of filler or details between 
And so there was a lot of places where I was able to fill things out in a very satisfying way, just for both for the narrative and just for the character journeys. Um, we get to know, yeah, you know, very much so like with My Bloody Valentine, where I loved the characters. Silent Night, Deadly Night is a property where I love the characters. They're so unique. They, even when they appear briefly on screen, there are some striking performances and memorable characters, whether it's Grandpa, who's only there for the very opening few scenes, and then someone like Mrs. Randall and Mr. Sims, the staff of Ira's Toys, or just some people, some random victims like Denise, who is so memorable, memorably played by Linnea Quigley. And these are characters that I wanted to spend a lot more time with and become friends with. <laughs> and this book gave me a chance to explore all that in such a rich way. Um, again, these characters I love. I love Billy. It's um, He's a great protagonist and antagonist, which is in itself a complicated <laughs> act to pull off in a novel to keep your sympathies but other characters too um sister margaret really was an anchor for me and she's kind of an anchor i think for for the audience in general and the way she kind of fills that dr loomis role in this story of chasing the patient with all the answers and yet nobody listens to her and she's always a minute too late things like that there's a people who are trying to help Billy so there's so much great stuff to explore and and I'm glad I had that freedom with this much in the way that I did with my bloody valentine where I was given free reign to like you know it was very important explain TJ's story you know what happened to TJ when he left like you get those moments those great story things that you can really play with and latch on to. I love that. That's a big part of the fun of getting to do these. So yes, yeah, Silent Night, Deadly Night is going to, you get to know these people so much better and you get to understand them so much more. And that's a big, big part of the joy for me. It's amazing listening to you talk about how much these characters mean to you because that was something so striking about your adaptation of My Bloody Valentine. I fell in love with those characters and they're really appealing people on screen. And then just to get inside of their headspace and, you know, see their perspectives and see moments that were cut from the movie is such an incredible opportunity. I actually, I didn't tell you this before, uh, before we started recording, but I actually got my hands on a copy of Hoarder and oh, nice. uh, yeah, one of your other novels. And I've been reading that and you just have such an incredible, incredible way of working with your characters and making them these people that we instantly latch on to. And I think that that is such a gift and I cannot wait to see how that is done in Silent Night, Deadly Night. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I do think that's one of my kind of my hallmarks of my style is I really tell all my stories through the eyes and minds of the characters. I very rarely want to just be observing people from a distance. I want to understand them and see every situation through their heads. And in a way that 
I think makes my novelization stand out from other novelizations where really it's simply a more expanded look at a screenplay, but from the similar distance, whereas that's not really my interest or goal. I want to do it through the people, through the characters themselves. And you get to discover so much more, <laughs> and I think, doing it that way. And again, you do get to fall in love with them. I wouldn't spend so much time, you know, and energy, you know, working on these if if that wasn't important to me. And in these both of these books, that is that was a big joy. That was a big part of it. Both of these books are centered around holidays that are, you know, celebrated and cherished year after year after year. Is there something appealing about that to you? And does it kind of make you want to work with other holiday related novels? I mean, you also did two books about Thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. If I had to pick a favorite subgenre of horror, it would be the retro slashers, the golden era of the early 80s. Like those films formed me like they were the ones that at a very young age I was exposed to and they rattled my world. They shook me, they terrified me, and then they became very interesting to me. So, you know, the the classic series, Halloween and Friday the 13th, and, you know, these were my formative films. Something about the theme day <laughs> slashers of that era which, yes, they were all looked at as potential cash grabs by numerous producers, but by numerous good producers, you know? And people like John Dunning, producer John Dunning, was doing exciting work, you know, at the time. And he latched onto a couple, you know, theme days, you know, in Canada. Luckily, I got to do, you know, my bloody Valentine. And and yet these films, they and they're they still have an impact on a great audience, I think. There's something about holidays that I loved as a child. They were days to look forward to during an otherwise drab year. So they were always meant to be special. And yet when one didn't go right, it could be a spectacular failure too. And these stories, these holiday slasher films really just probed the atmosphere of those days the loneliness the excitement all of it the palpable taste of these holidays so i'm I, yes i've been obsessed with the, them i would love to continue working with them very much when i wrote my turkey day series turkey day and its sequel turkey kitchen and it is meant to be a trilogy i do have a third book in mind which would be the biggest of the trilogy. And that's saying a lot because Turkey Kitchen is close to half to close to twice as long as Turkey Day was. Like, you know, I want to go for a thousand page book with the with the final book. It's that interesting to me, building a holiday mythology and how far I can push it. So absolutely it was an it was an added joy. Like just to adapt any classic <laughs> film from my youth a favorite of mine is an exciting thing but to have it be attached to a holiday even makes it more exciting to me and you know I'm the type of 
horror fan, when a holiday rolls around, I watch all of the theme day horror films and slashers centered around it. It's a part of the atmosphere of all of my holidays of the year. So that's all already been my tradition for decades, <laughs> you know, going back to my youth. And so, yeah, these books um, give me a chance to wallow in the holidays even more than I've ever had a chance to before. Now, what I find very funny at this point is doing, going from two Thanksgiving novels to a Valentine's Day novel to a Christmas novel is I often find myself living in a particular holiday during long periods of time, which include over other holidays and so i've really over the past year and a half become to get a bit confused about my holidays because i'm living multiple holidays at once like it was very weird to decorate for halloween last year when i'm deep into my bloody valentine for months like i couldn't it i would i had both holidays existing Valentine's Day and Halloween in my mind, but Halloween in my house, in in the environment, and and then right when Christmas ends last year, I go back into Christmas land, and I've been stuck in Christmas. So <laughs> even as I was celebrating Valentine's Day <laughs> and the release of my bloody Valentine, I was already burning gingerbread candles. And living in a, and I actually decorated my place to look like the Valentine's dance in, in my bloody Valentine. And yet I have Christmas scents and I'm taking in all the Christmas elements. And here we are now in Halloween coming up <laughs> this year <laughs> and I'm shedding Christmas after you know, living in Christmas land all year, getting out my Halloween decorations. But to give you a little scoop, I am on to my next novelization of another retro flasher classic. And I don't want to hint too much, but I am still experiencing my holiday confusion. And this is going to continue until the end of the year. And I can't reveal where I'm living in my head right now <laughs> but I am I have already shifted those gears and now I kind of am bombarded by three times of the year it's so <laughs> unusual it's just it's like getting all of the holiday candy from all of the candy all of the holidays in one dish that's get, insane. There's Halloween candy in there, and there's Christmas candy in there, and there's Valentine's candy in there, and there's other kind of candies in there. And I can just choose whichever one I want. It's a crazy convergence of atmospheres and tastes. I love yeah. it. It's it's how can I not thrill at this opportunity? <laughs> All that I'm picturing right now is Pee-wee's Playhouse and how he had holiday decorations from every holiday up in his front yard um so holy cow another holiday film i mean my brain is speculating so many things and i'm not going to start listing any movies because i don't want to get you in any kind of trouble but that is so exciting to me because you capture the essence and what makes these holidays nostalgic 
for your readers so well. And holy shit, what an exciting scoop. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. By the end of the year, I hope that I'm able to talk more, more freely with an announcement of what will follow Silent Night, Deadly Night. That's great. You know, you mentioned your kind of formative influences, and it brought me back to when you were on the show previously. You mentioned a connection to Clive Barker, and we didn't talk about it, but I would love if you could expound on it just a little bit and talk to us about you and Clive. Oh, I just, I adore Clive. I I love Clive as a person and as an artist. Um, and, you know, it goes back to the mid-80s. You know, I was luckily because I was becoming the connoisseur of the genre in the mid 80s, you know, the early 80s, I did live through it and I was observant of it. But the horror films terrified me. They repelled me. Um, but regardless, I was very lucky that I did get to see a few of those films back first run. Not all of them, though, um, because they scared me too bad. <laughs> but come 1985, that all changed. Um, I believe it was after I saw Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, first run, where that genre bug really kicked in with the films. But before that, I would say it was reading Stephen King. That was really the kickoff. But 85 was that year. Early 85, I was now reading Stephen King novels, and I purchased my first Fangoria. Well, Fangoria was always right there with um you know re exposing us that was how we got exposure to new talent back then when we didn't have the internet and social media and they were praising clive barker from the moment his books appeared in the uk and so as an american kid i was already in 1985 reading interviews with clive and fangoria and going oh i can't wait to read these books of blood and then in a incredible twist of of luck for audiences and for clive these books were very widely available in paperback when they were released and clive barker's books of blood the first three were these very luridly covered paperbacks with these monster masks with bright colors around them and worms coming out of the eyes and they were available in every supermarket checkout lane in a small american town in a red state like how is that possible like it's so incredible that such vivid shocking horrific and explicit art was available to anyone who knew and who did know well, this young kid who <laughs> had just become a big fan of Stephen King. And so like right away, you know, King was the first, he was the biggie for me. And then right after that, just within, you know, a, the first year I was reading Clive. So, and then of course I would follow up with everything after, you know, running out, you know, in 1986 was the year that I would be buying hardcovers and Stephen King's, it was the first. But once, you know, Clive's books started being released here that way as well, you know, they were first day purchases, which was um, very important and exciting. And so, of course, I absolutely admired his Clive's fiction, 
going back for decades. I remember when he would tour, do book tours, and I would see him during every Seattle stop. And he was a rock star. He would pack the venues. They would be overflowing. Sometimes they weren't typical reading or book venues because he needed a bigger place for an audience. And he would read his fiction and then he would spend a long time just talking with the audience about all of his completely uncensored thoughts and just insane brilliance. And I was just a young, you know, a young man going to all of these events, just absorbing that energy, the intelligence of his fiction. And so, and, you know, and then that's, that's not even talking about the movies, which were so influential and and when they hit even nightbreed which just happened to be like i believe it was released the day after my 18th birthday but i was working at a movie theater that opened it as the projectionist and so i was able to assemble it and run it the prior night for myself on my birthday on my oh, 18th cool. birthday that's so to see cool. nightbreed on that particular day How's that not an influence? You know, I was already an outcast monster in my in my town. So, you know, complete identification. So, you know, luckily, you know, just I ended up in Los Angeles. Paths ended up crossing with him at so many different events and signings. And eventually I had some bravery to actually speak to him at a signing. And which was oddly enough, just in West Hollywood, one block like a half block from where I lived at the time. And so I went there and talked with him and he drew in my book and we struck up a conversation. And luckily those continued over the years and he was generous with his time and his discussions. And um, he enjoyed my short films, which are all very perverse and inexcessive and gross. And nice. so like, that's no surprise. And, <laughs> but eventually he you know, read my fiction and said great things about it and was able to give me a quote, a, a very positive quote that I just like how it's just so incredible to to finally reach that position where it was just something I did, something I created myself that he not only read, but seemed to read closely, like he could dissect it for me and really get deep down into it and so that you know to be able to discuss things just like fiction and approaches and with with Clive is wonderful and and I find this very amazing because we we definitely work in the same genre you know of horror and we're both very transgressive and yet I don't see my stuff as being like his at all mm. you know I don't at all I never try to replicate what he's so brilliant at it's just impossible for me to because i can't even get a handle on how his imagination works it's so incredible to me and i i think we write very differently but we both admire you know each other's uh work and that's just a wonderful you know it's it's all the the confidence i need you know to keep pushing forward with my path which you know, now seems to be very much in line with what he did, you know, just pursuing his writing and fictions. And you see where it takes 
where it takes you, you know, he lives it. He lives his art. Absolutely. Total devotion and love and commitment. And I try to do the same. <laughs> so yeah, he's very, very wonderful man and influence for me. That's remarkable. And, you know, Stephen King kind of gave his stamp of approval on Clive's work. I think, didn't he say, I have seen the face of horror and his name is Clive Barker, something like that. And so for him to have done the same thing for you, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel very, very fortunate. That, um, Good for you. You just that Clive was very responsive. And, you know, he's not the only one. There's been, a, you know, a few avenues and places with that have, you know, I don't have quite, quite the audience yet, you know, someone like Clive, but um, people do take notice, you know, over the, you know, since I released my debut novel, Hoarder. And I mean, you um, got a spread in Fangoria earlier this year for my bloody Valentine, you know, you are, you're doing really, you're doing well. Yeah, that was very wonderful. I mean, three pages, three page spread with getting to talk with George Mayalka you know, about my bloody Valentine and, and being, bringing it back and, and in a way him kind of handing the torch to me to yeah. keep it all alive is like, wow, that's quite um, an intense responsibility, but one that I'm very thankful to have and will happily carry that torch. And so Fangoria has been great over the years, um, both their magazine and when they, you know, they've done so much online over the years with different writers and and people that they've worked with i was able to do so many interviews for their website with um sean abley with gay of the dead his um incredible interview series and and blog that he had on fangoria.com for a while which then he compiled those interviews into a book and other journalists that they had like Rebecca McKendry, who was a huge Pervula fan and nice. did a live webcast interview with me at a, I want to say 2007 or 8 Fangoria Weekend of Horrors in LA, which in itself to be, you know, to have somebody interview me there was unreal because I started going to that convention in 1989 um, and made it a yearly journey out of you know from out of state to go to that one convention so conventions were important to me since i was 17 thanks to fangoria and and yet you know rebecca got to interview me sitting next to david hess and you know she's telling david hess about pervula and he's all what's a pervula like he sounded pretty interested and it's like it's me and um <laughs> so that's exciting and then in 2015 i was interviewed um about hoarder in in issue i believe it was 344 and it was the final i think it was the final printed chris alexander issue wow and chris alexander gave a very nice had very nice words about hoarder i couldn't believe it and i have um, it right here he said it's dynamite a sickening imaginative shocker yeah that's like that made me feel good so like that you know, makes me realize, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing. I'm just going to keep on this path. And hopefully, you know, the people that I, you know, will take notice of this work I'm putting out. Hoarder's been, you know, was a really wonderful first novel. And I think it's still 
getting attention to this day, you know, and if it wasn't for Hoarder, I may not have been given Silent Night, Deadly Night, mm-hmm. but, you know, it impressed, you know, the producers of that film, the original producers of that film, you know, and that helped get me, get me in for, you know, adapting Silent Night, Deadly Night. And so, so thankfully, you know, Fangoria has been very supportive. Oh, I'll mention that first Fangoria interview that I did in 344 had Elvira as the cover model and a huge spread on her career and an interview with Cassandra Peterson in the in the pages, which was unreal in itself for other reasons we'll, I think, be discussing shortly <laughs> before Absolutely. the end of this interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just another one of those connections I've had to Elvira. I have to say that she's given me support to some of my work before too, but I'll get to that. That's incredible. Oh, later. my God. Well, why don't you let my listeners know how they can get their hands on the upcoming Silent Night, Deadly Night novel? Right now, we are taking pre-orders for the first edition hardcover of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And it's available for pre-order at StopTheKiller.com. And that's Anthony Massey's company that has also released the board games for Silent Night, Deadly Night, and My Bloody Valentine in conjunction with uh, Fright Rags. And right now, they are the only ones um, pre-selling this first edition. And I believe we will have pre-sales going probably till the end of October. So about one more month. And then those pre-sales will be cut off. And that first edition run will be locked. And once they are locked, there's not going to be more of that particular edition. And there are special perks to this first edition hardcover, similar to what um, Stop the Killer did with My Bloody Valentine. And they include um, an autographed book plate. So for Silent Night, Deadly Night, it will be autographed by me and the executive producers of the original film, Scott Snyd and Dennis Whitehead. There will be an additional chapter that is exclusive only to that first edition hardcover. And of course, that's a juicy chapter. You don't want to miss that. Your one chance to see it because it won't make it into reprints. And an exclusive um, edition artwork cover by Lynn Hansen, who is an incredible cover artist who's done so many incredible book covers that's just an honor to have her on board and you know i would recommend you know if you really are a fan of this film and really want this novelization pre-order it while you can because we sold out of every copy of my bloody valentine and we do have a paperback release planned soon and i don't unfortunately have full information yet on when that will be but it is absolutely being worked on i hope we can have it available for valentine's day for the paperback but there could be a gap of time between hardcover and paperback so kind of you know for a window those who want to get the book get it now because the copies are the ones that are appearing of my bloody valentine on ebay are pretty highly priced and um 
And plus, this is just a, it's a fun book. It's a joyful holiday horror book. It'll be such a fun Christmas gift for people. It will shock them year round. <laughs> um, so that's the way to get a hold of, uh, to pre-order Silent Night, Deadly Night. Now, we do anticipate it will be shipping early December, and maybe we'll even start getting some out in late November. So we're right, we're very close at this point. About one more month for pre-orders. That's so great. You'll get it out right in time for the holiday. I got to say, the entire novel of My Bloody Valentine was a fucking incredible experience. I read it all in, I think, two sittings. But that exclusive chapter, was it chapter 13? It was. Yeah, was it such a such a treat. I'm so glad that I got my hands on that first edition. And I can't wait to see what this exclusive chapter for Silent Night, Deadly Night has in store. So I've already made my pre-order months ago and I just cannot <laughs> wait to get my hands on it. I'm so right. excited. Nice. I'm excited. I'm excited for people to discover this book because yeah. I'm very proud of it. And um, <laughs> it's gonna, I hope it, it causes a reaction perhaps similar to to the reaction the film created, <laughs> which is to say, I want to shock and surprise readers it's always been part of the intent of Silent Night. Deadly Night is not only to deliver of a novelization of the film we know and love, but to replicate its legacy and its notoriety. And that's not to say that I want the book to be banned and pulled from bookshelves or anything, but you just never know how things are going to work these days. That's true. Oh, God, so long that's... as that book gets out, I'm I wish that were ready. a funny joke, but it's not. <laughs> right. I I will I will be so thrilled to see it in print. <laughs> I just to me that's going to be quite an accomplishment. Good. Well, it is, and I I'm proud of you. You should be proud of yourself. I'm sure that you are. And uh, damn, I can't wait for your next novel as well. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us about Silent Night, Deadly Night. This, yeah, this is my first chance getting to kind of publicly. Oh, cool. Riff on it um, some and and that's exciting. So I can I'm finally getting really prepped now for Christmas. Good. <laughs> like I haven't already. Right, I was just right. touring out into some other holidays and yet I can't help having this Christmas excitement build as the release date kind of creeps up on us. <laughs> well, it's a coming. <laughs> one season away now. It's right. one season away. Yeah. Actually, this book will be getting out by the end of fall. So, Sure, that's true. Just in time for, for the Christmas season. Well, all right, Armando, let's take a moment. I love to give my listeners a recommendation of some sort of horror that we have consumed recently. This could be movies or TV, books, music, etc. What do you have? What do you recommend this week? Well, with books, I am currently immersed in Stephen King's Holly. <laughs> so, um, you know, typically I might have finished it already but as i'm juggling multiple books at this time i set aside a few day a few chapters a day <laughs> for stephen king and then i jump back into mine so i'm slowly savoring stephen king's holly and i'm thrilled that he's finally oh not finally what am i saying he you know he always goes back to cringy horror yeah. You know, there's always books that are going to deliver that element. 
his last two big novels were not in that realm Mm-mm. with Billy Summers and Fairy Tale, both super highly acclaimed successful novels in their own right. But regardless, I always get more of a thrill when he goes for the oogie stuff, when he's probing the nerves and when he's going for gross outs or fright. And so that's what Holly is. And so, you know, I'm actually enjoying kind of slowly savoring it as I read it and just letting it sink its claws into me and disturb me more and more. And I'm close to halfway done, but, you know, there's multiple moments in that book that will never leave me now that will make me cringe every time I think of them. And that's part of the excitement of it. He's still getting a good reaction out of me so that's great so i definitely recommend holly um you know there, there's been some good horror films this year uh and you know i've been happy to see the success that some of the films i've really enjoyed um and you know i like i like a lot of the bigger <laughs> marquee titles you know I'll, I'll totally admit it i'm a franchise fan so to you know this year i think was a good year for scream and for evil dead yeah. you know so those are fun and talk to me you know i'm glad it took the crown from hereditary because i found it superior to hereditary Ooh, you know for that's a 24 that's a bold oh. statement to say on my show <laughs> <laughs> i yeah got it i cringed i you know yeah i'm just going by my own cringe factor and i respect that, it for me that was it. talk to me got that reaction but um you know i if i had to recommend any one thing this year yeah you know a lot of people follow me on social media some people will know that i've been campaigning hard for a show this year i've been geeking out this year over something and i love to geek out and, and just be total nerd boy about certain things you know i'm the type who wears the t-shirts of my favorite franchises every day i you know, I'm a walking billboard yeah. for the things I like. But I got to tell you, it's not horror. And yet I found myself so utterly obsessed by something this year that it reaches heights. It, it takes me to heights of giddiness and excitement that can only like I can only connect to, to my childhood of getting so utterly insanely excited about something in the media. And that is oh gosh hold on everybody because nobody's <laughs> unless those few people who have followed me <laughs> really closely know this is coming <laughs> out of me out of me but i'm beyond obsessed with greece rise of the pink ladies oh my god you are you won't shut up about it i love love seeing how obsessed you are with it <laughs> i have become a pink lady i am now an honorary pink lady yeah and anti-bird and just rydell high student i i plug into it so completely and you know this goes back to i i will admit i wasn't even really excited for it when i heard about it and it wasn't until like literally a week or two before the premiere that i really kind of accepted that it was coming only because i always thought nothing could ever compare to greece 2 
and my absolute love and obsession with Grease 2 is one of my all-time favorite It's movies. the superior of the Grease films. The idea, the thought that a series, a streaming series, could compete with my love of Grease 2. And I do love Grease as well, but nowhere near on the level of Grease 2. I just never thought it would be possible. Yeah. And yet now I find myself going, Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies is the best incarnation of any Grease. Nice. Like, wow. And it's not just that, but it's the representation is so important and isn't I don't know if it's ever been as important as in this show so far as queer representation, minority representation. As much as I love Greece and Greece too, I never saw myself in those stories. Someone like me as a queer minority, like I don't exist in the world of Greece and Greece too. Mm. And yet Greece Rise of the Pink Ladies pinpoints all of those people who were not seen before and makes it about them and i had no idea the impact could be as strong as it was for me and that it would get such an emotional and deep emotionally deep response out of me and the fact that they got to package all of that with the best songs and the best choreography i've seen I just, I'm nuts. I'm nuts over it. It's not horror. I recommend it to everybody. So I think Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies is now simply another part of me. It's another limb and I'm going to carry it with me and sing its praises endlessly until until they give us a season two. <laughs> I will admit I did not watch it, but now hearing you talk about it to with this much love and adoration i'm i'm gonna have to get my hands on it i'm gonna have to check it out oh man well all right my recommendation this week i watched the 2020 film relic it is directed by natalie erica james it stars emily mortimer and i i really it's the kind of movie that i recommend going in as blindly as possible i think it's a really remarkable take on something that happens to all of us and you certainly don't know what's happening until the final frames of the film. It is so good at building tension and incredible with its use of practical effects from practical sets that do really amazing things uh, to really incredible uh, makeup and animatronic work as well. And uh, released in 2020, it just found its wider release uh, or its wider distribution and is currently streaming on Shutter, And I, you know, it's a slow burn and it takes its time and it is so, so worth the experience. I I really recommend it. I think it, it for the right kind of person, it's gonna hit really hard and it's really fucking creepy. The kind of movie that I watched it alone late at night and then I was like, oh God, I have to walk to my bedroom in the dark now. <laughs> oh, I love that feeling. Yeah, I mean, it I doesn't those... happen often, you know? I love those creepy slow burns too. Like I do I'm too. All, I don't need all excitement. Like I love atmosphere. I love every kind of of tactic to evoke fear and get under the skin. So you know, yeah, sometimes that's brutal murders, and sometimes it's just lingering dread and anticipation and subverted expectation. 
and that's a joy all of its own. Absolutely agreed. And I feel like as horror fans, we're constantly searching for that, right? We're looking for that movie that's going to give us that feeling again. And Relic was one that did that for me. Not to be confused with the 90s monster movie that uh, is not as good as I probably thought it was when I was a kid. <laughs> but so that's I wish my I was a, I wish I was a bigger fan of The Relic. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I revisit it every once in a while thinking maybe now will be the time it really clicks. And it kind of hasn't never really clicked. I remember me. liking but, it when I was young, but I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there. You know, I'm not going to revisit it because I don't think it's going to be what I what I thought it was when I was a kid. I, I like the cast. You know, I like I like the practical effects. You know, there's there's elements of that they were good at. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it all gelled. I did actually revisit it recently, and and I like to do that with certain titles, especially ones that have um large followings and yeah. i have to say that i think my reaction was the same <laughs> got it well speaking of of things that have large followings i went to my very first horror convention this last weekend i went to connecticut horror con uh or sorry i went to connecticut horror fest it was in hartford connecticut Yay. and uh i had the time of my life i selected this to be my first convention because the lineup of guests was remarkable. I was able to meet Nick Castle, the original shape mm. from Halloween, and he could not have been cooler. I was such a dork. I tripped over my bag when I went to shake his hand. And then I, I always, I never know what to say. I feel like I mutter things like, I, what, what, what can I say that they haven't already heard, you know, but I, I told him, I've been afraid of you since I was a kid. And he laughed and said, I'm sorry about that. And uh, <laughs> he signed, I had a really great uh, rehaul of my trick or treat studios mask done. This artist on Etsy, yeah. his studio's name, his store's name on Etsy is he came home studios and uh, sent him my trick or treat studios mask. He stripped the paint, redid the eye holes and relayed the hair and looked incredible. So now that's signed by Nick got a really cool <laughs> I was such wow. a mess I had my camera on my phone set to the wrong setting so it was on video mode when I handed it to the guy taking pictures so now in addition to a photograph I also have a 10 second video of me and Nick Castle just smiling ignorantly into my camera just <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny uh, and then I was also able to meet the entire cast well you know a big chunk of the cast uh of of the film i was you know uh pj souls and nancy loomis and i met oh, wow. bob and yeah oh it was so cool i got a group picture uh i met art the clown so david howard thornton but in his art mm. the clown makeup which was oh, great creepy, creepy. yeah he and he was in character as he was doing that so no speaking and just kind of like doing his weird little clown prance over and got a great picture uh, and Devin Sawa as well was one I was very excited to meet because last week's or my last episode of the show was all about Casper. And, you know, mm. I had a huge crush on him. We're very similar in age. And so we were little like kid actors at the same time. And uh, so I had him sign my poster. Can I keep you? Which is his line <laughs> in the movie. And he was super sweet about it. Uh, but the reason, the main reason I wanted to go to this convention was to meet Cassandra Peterson Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And I think I'm still floating from having that experience there. I'm not the biggest kind of mm, like idol worshiper 
you know, when it comes to mm -hmm. celebrities. Um, but she has always been such a presence to me and such an inspiration. I, I was able to get a photograph with her. Um, and then I also was able to get, she signed my, I have a massive, like it takes up half of my wall poster from the French release of her film, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And so I wow. brought that and I unfolded it. It's, I mean, it's big, whatever you're picturing, double it. And she recognized the poster. She has the same one hanging up on her wall, which I thought was really cool. Mm. You know, what I was really impressed with, with my experience with her was that despite signing thousands and thousands of autographs and meeting thousands of people that weekend, she was so present with every single person that she spoke with. And I think really truly values and recognizes what she and Elvira mean to people. Mm -hmm. And um, by the time she, I, I purposely separated my two days. Day one was kind of Halloween day. Day two was Cassandra Peterson day, right? So photograph, uh, autograph, and then going to her discussion panel as well. And so by the time I got around to meeting her, I think I had gotten some nerves worked out about how to talk to these people that I admire. And I, I asked her, because I am working on my first screenplay, and it's a film that I intend to be in as well. So my question was, what advice do you have for someone who's writing a screenplay that they also intend to star in? And she said, ooh, and she took like some time to think about her answer, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> you know, she told me, uh, get lots of sleep, because if you write yourself into every scene, mm -hmm. you're going to mm -hmm. be exhausted. She said, keep track of what draft you're on. You're going to write a million drafts. And when it comes to the day of the shoot, just make sure that you know which lines are on the script that day. And then she said, oh, and you have to remember to have fun. And that seemed like a really important thing uh, for her to say, to say was you have to remember to have fun. So she signed my poster. She said, uh, she signed, hey, Ricky, you forgot your axe. And then je t'aime Elvira, because it's the French poster. Mm -hmm. And um it was just a wonderful experience and I cherish it. I got a front row seat to her discussion panel and uh, she said something in it. Uh, and I laughed obnoxiously big and loud because it was so funny. And she stared me right in the eyes and laughed at me laughing at her. And so we had that cute little, you know, throwaway <laughs> moment. Um, and, and I'm just not over it. But so in honor of me meeting this incredibly talented and inspirational person to me, I wanted to talk about her film, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. So let's do that. Let's go rick-or-treating. Hey, Spookies. Like many of you, I'm a big collector of horror VHS tapes. Some of my favorite titles include Night of the Giving Head, Buffy the Vampire Lair, Grabbing in the Woods, A Wet Dream on Elm Street, The Last Whorehouse on the Left, Evil Head, The XX Exorcist, and The Midnight Meat Train. However, after playing them over and over and over and over, I found that the quality was becoming less than satisfactory, and I began having trouble fitting those tapes into my slot. My VCR slot, that is. Well, not to worry. All new Anonymous Head Video Head Cleaning Solvent from Pigpen does the trick. Pigpen's anonymous head video head cleaning solvent is guaranteed to get rid of all your video head problems with its strong formula and potent reliability. This solvent comes in an attractive, sleek, sexy, and spooky skull-shaped bottle. Oh, and it smells great too. 
Pigpen's anonymous head video head cleaning solvent cleared my VHSs right up, and now I never have a problem getting a tape into my slot. And right now, you can get 20% off Pigpen's anonymous head video head cleaning solvent and more Pigpen products, including t-shirts and apparel, by visiting their website and using code RICKRETREAT at checkout. The brand is Pigpen, and the code is RICKRETREAT for 20% off. What are you waiting for? Try anonymous head from Pigpen today. Go ahead, get some head. Today we are talking the 1988 classic, iconic film, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Armando, what is your relationship to this movie? Can you describe the first time you ever watched it? Oh, my relationship to this film is incredibly special. Yeah. (laughs) It's an unusual story. And it actually makes this film a part of my own personal history. And that is, it was released, you know, this week in 1988 which makes it the 35th anniversary incredible this this week is also a 35th anniversary for me and that is as a film a 35 millimeter film projectionist oh cool as a teenager i was got my first theater job and this was the week i started 35 years ago and elvira mistress of the dark was the first film that i got to assemble first time i got to assemble a 35 millimeter print and run one which then opened the following day and so her movie marks my anniversary you know as a film projectionist which is still something i do kind of on the side it's it's um there have been periods where i wasn't doing it but uh i've in a way it's kind of one of the long-standing things that i've done in my life is running 35 millimeter of course now it's not a thing (laughs) right so much unless you're at a revival house so i have a genuine love of projecting film actual film because elvira's movie was the first one that i got to work with makes it extra special but the thing was is i was already super excited for it because I was a mega fan of course in the 80s you know I got to I became a horror fan in the mid 80s Elvira exposure was everywhere she was on every talk show she was on commercials she was a spokes uh model for products and Coors beer and hosting you know she would host video hour blocks on MTV and sometimes it'd be Freddy Krueger doing that or something, you know, like she was such a part of the culture of the 80s. She was so recognizable and she was hilarious, you know, and that's the thing. That's always going to be what made, I think, made her career, you know, coming out of the groundlings and achieving her success at the same time as Paul Rubens, another groundling and so many other great talents like Edie McClurg and John Paragon and just it she came from such a rich group of creativity and artists and I became a I didn't get to watch movie macabre when it was first aired because I lived in a small red state small town we did not get her show 
broadcast. People were still trying to come to grips with who she was, but, you know, Fangoria embraced her to where they gave her coverage of Mistress of the Dark. You know, they gave ample coverage to that film in their pages. Of course, I was totally excited to see it. I And the fact that I got to put it together and watch it myself with the staff yeah. the night before its release. And to this day, it's, I would say, it's my favorite comedy. You know, it's got horror elements. It lives in a ghoulish space. It lives in the horror space, even though it is a full-fledged comedy. And yet I remember kids going to see the movie and being scared. And I even if, though I was running it, I still watched it in the auditorium with the audience again and again for the like three weeks that was there and watching how people responded to it just into this day. I watched it again last night in preparation of, of talking to you today. And I laugh out loud at every delivery of hers. She is just, that kind of comedy is golden. It never gets old. Her sexual humor her lack of shaming she's so inspiring as an outcast as a horror fan and even you know the fact that she is a horror host and that ended up being something I did for a while <laughs> when I during my time at the new art theater where I hosted a live midnight movie horror series <laughs> you know so I got to kind of live and I would host and interview people and do gags and jokes and costumes and short shorts on the screen like all sorts of crazy things like I understand her as a horror host but the fact that she was this character in the movie carrying around 35 millimeter prints of cheapo horror films in the trunk of her car the macabre mobile that super cool car like what's the coolest thing about the car everybody's gonna say the car but I'm like oh those no, she's probably got Night of the Living Dead in the back, in the trunk, along with, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Like, how cool could she be? And, you know, because I was getting into film at the same time and she's hauling these prints around. Like, there's just so much connection I, I saw with her. But also I was living in a a small town that fancied itself like the town in Elvira, Mistress of the Tart. It was a very Christian, conservative, small town community who totally turn their noses up at people who looked gothic or listened to rock and roll music like i the way that the adversarial nature the town had with elvira in that movie was my daily existence as a teenager where i grew up so like i could not have connected to that movie anymore it was the perfect movie for me at the perfect time to say you can establish yourself as a horror weirdo heavy metal pinko weirdo as they say in the film and and just embrace it you know she gave me confidence at a time when I needed it <laughs> and so so many things about that particular movie were just perfect it hit at the right time I mean the fact that it was not a success was always a surprise to me and even to this day, it has absolutely developed a cult following. But why it's not shown regularly like Rocky Horror as a midnight oddity and just staple kind of baffles me. Uh, I still feel it needs to get a bit more recognition because it is one of the great comedies. And I think 
it's definitely up there with Pee-wee's Big Adventure and just mm-hmm. some of the most iconic character comedies that introduced that character to a, an even wider audience than just her oh, show. For sure. And I, I am glad that it is still embraced and being discovered to this day and that we still have a chance to talk about it on its anniversary. And, you know, you mentioned your first convention. I got to say, my first convention back in 1989, Fangoria's Weekend of Horrors in LA, in LA, she was the top guest. I mean, there were so many great guests I met that weekend from Doug Bradley to Kane Hodder to Bruce Campbell to so many people, um, writers, directors. I got the very first autograph ever asked of Frank Darabont. Um, he's like, nobody's ever asked me for an autograph. How do you even know who I am? And I was like, what are you talking about? You you wrote these incredible movies. Of course, I love your stuff, you know? So I have his first autograph. Um, so many great people were there, but wow. Elvira, she was a sensation. The, the amount of audience and press that she drew to her eclipsed everybody by a hundred times. It was a mob scene of how big she was. And I had no idea that her, that level, and, you know, especially because I had run her movie at a theater to near empty audiences. Yeah. And then to see her in person the next year wow. and just having that kind of reaction was more affirmation that she was on this other level that and i love that she's still doing conventions today and that's a little different because it wasn't as personal back then yeah we didn't get to have the photo opportunities and the and the one-on-one but what we did have back then was she did a q a during her her panel which was just her up on stage basically doing a comedy routine um and then taking questions from the audience. And as a 17 year old, you know, I raised my hand and I asked her, my big question for Elvira was, is that dagger you wear in your belt real? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what a weird little question to ask. And she pulled out the dagger and waved it at me threateningly. And she said, yeah, to cut punks like you. Ah, and I, I cut you man. <laughs> and, and I just about melted. Like I was just, my little ridiculous question she had an incredible comedy delivery line for and everybody laughed and i like my love for her you know it began before mistress of the dark but it's super solidified for life with mistress of the dark but then it just never stopped because she kept popping up in my life in close ways, you know, to be one of the 20 film selections in her only film festival in 2012 with my short film Pergula was such an honor. Yeah. And then to actually not win the best short award, that would have been nice, but to just get the what the fuck recognition award, that's like pretty incredible to me and um getting to meet her at the final big premiere in los angeles that she co-hosted with um she co-hosted hosted that festival with peaches christ was such a joy and joe bob briggs was one of the film judges and he was so nice to me yeah. and i went dressed as pervula as my monster from my short film and got to take photos with elvira and joe bob as my monster character 
you know, yeah. and I quipped to, you know, as we were getting our pictures taken with Elvira's, like, I understand doing drag. <laughs> Believe me, I know what it's like to have to put on these ridiculous costumes when you appear. I get her. I just love her. So from everything from the projection anniversary and the love of the movie, being a part of her film festival, being interviewed by Fangoria <laughs> and the issue that has her on the cover. It just seems so endless. All yeah. these ways that she's just right there around me. So such a palpable positive influence. And of course, you know, if you've read her autobiography, she's just a brilliant, smart woman, a gay icon, we can now say, and embrace, which is something we didn't have then. And um, how does she do it? Like, gosh, she's just really one of those living legends. And to be in her vicinity, now you know, is a magical thing. And you got, you know, I'm so glad you got to have that experience, you know, at, at the con this weekend and to know that you got to have that experience that I had in 89, but yours was even more personal. And that's so wonderful. It, the generosity of the woman just yeah. knows no bounds. And I, I think that's a great word for it. Generosity also, you know, because she, uh, <sighs> She she just has this. Um, I think that she has a, a real understanding of where she came from, and how far she's come, and the the things that she has accomplished. You know, and I think that she showcases this appreciation for where she is now and what she's been through. And you mentioned her book, Yours Cruelly, Elvira, and I read I I I love the audiobook version so much because it's her reading her own book and telling her own story. And I re-listened to it over the last week before I met her just to brush up on, you know, her history. And it's one of the reasons I'm not going to go into deep, deep detail about the behinds of the scenes of this make of this film, because she tells the story so much better than I ever could. And it's much more interesting having it come from her, but from starting out, you know, mm -hmm. as, as a child in Manhattan, Kansas and having boiling water accidentally poured over her body being covered in burn scars over 35% of her body and overcoming that to being a 17 year old showgirl in Las Vegas and meeting Elvis. <laughs> and it's just the, it's it, if you didn't know that it was true, you would think it was the most ridiculous life story imaginable. Right. And that she didn't, I just love that. She didn't even want to go to this audition to become Elvira, you know, and mm -hmm. it changed the course of her entire life. And that is just mind blowing to me. It's not just a case of right place, right time. It is right person, right place, right time. Because her comedy and her intelligence and her drive and her beauty are all aspects that created this incredible character that lives on 43 years later. We are still talking about celebrating and meeting with Elvira at conventions. You know, it's rumored that she is writing a book, not as Cassandra Peterson, but like a, a fiction novel from the perspective of Elvira, which I think is really cool. And she oh, has wow. hinted about another movie in the works. Mm -hmm. And it, here's the thing. She has pitched like a new TV show to Netflix and Shudder, and she's been turned down. And 
you know, reading her book, you find out that she had a couple opportunities or chances uh, taken at getting a TV series and they never took off, unfortunately. But uh, for me, what I love about her is her resilience because repeatedly things she's been on the precipice of something remarkable happening and mm -hmm. then it not even the release of this film it was picked up by new world's uh new world pictures and the weekend the day before it was actually released it was announced that new world pictures was going under and mm. because theaters were afraid that they weren't going to get paid for showing the movie theaters started pulling it left and right. So it went from showing in, I think around a thousand theaters across the country to just over 500. And that killed it at the box office. Uh, it was also unfortunately panned by critics who frankly, this movie wasn't for them, right? This movie exists in a, a style of comedy we don't see anymore. And it's kind of this, not quite slapstick, but just this goofy, um, film with one liner after one liner after one liner and the endless quotability of this movie. It, 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 there are quotes that we use today that people don't even recognize come from Cassandra Peterson. Like, like the, you know, the running joke on RuPaul's drag race is the how's your head. <laughs> and right. then whichever drag queen it was, I can't remember, didn't get the question. And, you know, RuPaul is laughing and like, you know, haven't had any complaints yet. That's a common joke that people uh -huh. don't realize is from this movie. Her cultural impact, her, you know, it, it's just, she blows my mind. So why don't we get into the plot of this movie? What do you think? Yes, yes, let's do that. Hey, Spookies. At this point in the recording, unfortunately, we suffered some technical difficulties. So I have had to go back and kind of plug in some key plot points just to make sure that you get the best recap of this incredible film as possible. So if it sounds a little choppy, that's why. But it was all for you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Let's do this. So we open on an old black and white movie. It's called It Conquered the World. It's from 1956. We see a UFO crash into a mountain. And this blonde woman is being attacked by this hideous carrot-looking monster. She tells it, so that's what you look like. You're ugly. Horrible. Try your intellect on me. I'll see you in hell first. And that line is going to come in a little bit later in the movie toward the end. The monster is defeated, and then we cut to a TV station where we see and meet Elvira, and she's doing what she does in real life. She's hosting this cheesy old B-movie for television. But as she's doing it, the producers of the show are kind of motioning for her. She has to hurry up. She has to hurry up. So she gives her famous sign-off, Unpleasant Dreams. And right when she does, a weather map falls on her head. And she's being rushed off the stage to make way for the nightly news. Uh, she gets She's laying down on her very famous red velvet couch. And she gets picked up by a couple of stagehands and carried off. Runs into this snotty anchor woman played by... The one and only Tress McNeil, who is an incredibly famous voice actress. She voiced Dot on the Animaniacs and Gadget on Rescue Rangers and ended up actually voicing Booberella on The Simpsons, who is a complete like um, 
animated representation of Elvira. So I think it's kind of funny. They were groundlings together, actually. So many groundlings appear in this movie. So anyway, this anchor woman says, is there anything that could possibly shame you? And Elvira tells her, yeah, wherein this in a public place might do it. I'm going to try not to, like comment on every single one-liner and and joke that this movie tells because there's so much better to watch in the movie but it's so hard this movie is endlessly quotable so elvira gets pulled aside by a producer and he tells her that a millionaire has just bought the station and he wants to meet her and she looks over and he's gross he's this like big creepy looking old guy in a giant 10 gallon like cowboy hat and he's inappropriate with her and he comes on to her and she stands up for herself she tells him you know i have an act opening up in las vegas and i don't need this from you and he says well perfect you can try your act out on me and he grabs her boobs but she won't have it and this is something that i really really love about elvira is that she stands up for herself the running gag with elvira is that she is incredibly gorgeous and incredibly sexy And she makes boob jokes all the time. But what I love about her is that she is the one in charge of these situations. She is the one making fun of her body. She's the one making fun of her sexiness. And when someone treats her inappropriately and it is not warranted and not welcome, she stands up for herself. So she steps on his foot with her high-heeled shoe and tells him off and backs him up into the set of the news casters and uh he falls down and completely crashes their table that they sit at and the snotty anchor woman falls uh her wig falls off and it's on the air and everybody sees it yeah so we see she gives it up we cut to elvira packing up her dressing room and her manager tells her backstage small problem with the show in las vegas they won't do it unless you front some of the money and they're asking for fifty thousand dollars which is a lot of fucking money. <laughs> the manager suggests she gets her job back and she says, forget it. I'm never working for that sleazeball again. I'll just have to find another sleazeball. And right on time, she gets a telegram telling of the passing of her great aunt Morgana. She has to go to the reading of the will in Falwell, Massachusetts, named after Jerry Falwell, which I never put that together until I read the book <laughs> to pick up her inheritance. So... We immediately cut to the reading of the will and Elvira's in a veil in mourning and the lawyer at the reading of the will reads, I bequeath my entire fortune to Elvira. And then he immediately turns into a game show host and tells her she's won a new sailboat and a Jeep Wrangler and a dining set. And she's jumping up and down. Any chance this movie has to show off her boobs and let her jump up and down, it certainly does. And then he tells her, you've won money, lots and lots of money and... Then it turns out it was all a daydream. But she decides to go to Falwell to pick up her inheritance. Now we cut to the macabre mobile. This is her incredible, like, fucking cool black convertible. The interior is all leopard print. The wheel is like this. It's like, it looks like chain. It's studded and spiked. And her license plate says kick ass. This car is fucking cool. Super custom. But... She told us at at the panel at Connecticut Horror Fest that the car was, it didn't run. They had customized it so much and kind of rearranged the whole thing that it was being pulled by a string, like by cables in order to get it to move. So she's never actually driving this car. No one's driving it. It's literally being pulled by cables. 
this like sequence driving across country is so cool to me because it starts in Kansas, which is where she's from. She says in her book, this movie is a little bit of a take on the wizard of Oz, right? It starts in black and white and you know, she drives through Kansas from Hollywood. And uh, there, there's even a moment where uh, Vin- uh, Vincent says, I'll get you and your little dog too. And then it ends with her kind of learning a lesson and ending up, you know, a happier person we get this cool montage where at one point she picks up a hitchhiker on the road and he's fucking weird and creepy and touching himself and gives kind of charlie manson vibes and she immediately stops the car and kicks him out and he runs away and she throws an like a hatchet and she goes here you forgot your axe do you know did you know who plays the axe murderer who gets into her car isn't that Joey Arias? It's Joey Arias, who I didn't realize. <laughs> um, and I've seen Joey perform here in New York a number of times and such an incredible performer because you never know what the hell you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that I actually did not know that for a long time. That's kind of a later detail I probably learned in the last 10 years or so. I mean, how would you recognize Joey in this movie anyway? Because... Joey looks no, of course not. You know, Joey is someone you know for looking so awesome and beautiful. And that's not that character in Elvira. No, <laughs> playing so sort I of never, a like a Charles Manson-esque hitchhiker. And so that's of course she signed yeah. on my poster. Hey, you forgot your axe. That's uh when she throws the axe his axe at him when he gets out of the car. I mean, in the movie, he's really creepy looking. It's, he's gross. It's actually really uncanny because he looks just like my dad. So every time I see him in the movie, I'm like, oh, oh God. God, don't look at <laughs> me like that, dad. Oh, no. <laughs> and then we get our title card, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, in red letters over a full moon with spooky clouds in the sky. She drives through the town and gets stopped for speeding. And actually, the police officer uh, is Bill Cable, who was her former uh, boyfriend who did you know he was the guy in basic instinct that gets ice picked to death no i did not know that yeah yeah uh it's it's a cute sequence though you know she pulls up next to a couple amish people in a cart and waves at them friendly in a friendly way and then they wave back unexpectedly and she pulls up to a gas station in the middle of nowhere and this attendant is completely unhump unhelpful he's like a country bumpkin uh smoking a cigarette and uh this is actually a cameo by John Paragon, the co-writer of the film, who Elvira, who Cassandra met in the Groundlings. Uh, but so she asks for help. He points to the self-service sign. So she has to do it herself. She's complaining. She cleans the window, like her windshield. And while she's doing it, her boobs are bouncing on the windshield. Uh, when she's done, she hangs the gas nozzle back up where it goes, but then it falls off and starts spilling gas and she gets in the car looks at the gas station attendant and tells him hey you know those things will kill you and he waves her off and says have a nice day and then as she drives away we get this really cool shot of elvira like driving the car and behind her the gas station completely explodes and we have to sit with the fact that elvira probably killed this guy (laughs) So Elvira drives past a sign that reads, Welcome to Falwell, Mass, a decent community. And when she drives past it, the sign actually falls over. It breaks. So she makes it to Falwell. And as she pulls into town, 
her car basically explodes. The hood like flies off of it. There's smoke everywhere. We 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 see Chastity Pariah for the for our first time, played by the wonderful Edie McClurg, also a groundling. And she's talking to some lady as they're walking down the street. She's got like rollers in her hair and she tells this lady, I can make darn sure he doesn't get it. I have my ways, you know, and that's all that we have to know about Chastity Pariah, right? That she's prude and condescending and so anyway elvira's car is broken down and the entire town like crowds around her chastity approaches her and says well i never and uh explains you know to elvira i don't know who you are or where you came from but you most certainly don't fit in this town why you don't even fit in that dress and elvira stands up for herself and says listen sister if i want your opinion i'll beat it out of you she says, oh, I never. Well, you never will with those soup cans in your hair because she's got those <laughs> rollers in her hair. But essentially, it turns out Elvira is stuck here in town. The teenage kids in town let Elvira know. And they're all fascinated with her. The boys have the hots for her. The girls think she's the coolest thing they've ever seen. But they tell her that there's a garage up the street. And the boys uh, very excitedly help her push the car to the garage. She takes the car to the mechanic. This is another bit that I really really love because <laughs> the old man who's working on our cars is, is telling this endearing like story where you just he's just this kind of dusty old sleepy old man who's working on her car and she kind of walks away she's bored and he's he is just going on and on and on about you know nonsense something that an old person would talk about and then he just looks in her direction and says nice tits and this this ability to have a running joke about her sexuality and about her body and particularly about her breasts is so great to me. Uh, Jinx Monsoon, I recently listened to her talking about Elvira and says that Elvira uses her boobs in jokes the way a drag queen talks about their dicks. And I think that that pretty much says a lot about Elvira's style of humor. Oh, very much so. I think that always appealed to me just... I think one of the funniest moments in the entire film is when she's eating the hot dog and it falls out into her cleavage, just all covered in mustard. And just that shot yeah, is one of the great moments of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it really is. Also, Cassandra being a vegetarian, I would certainly hope that, that she's such an advocate for PETA, right? <laughs> Hope as a veggie dog. Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, but so she um, finds a place to stay at a little motel called the Cozy Cot. Now, Elvira checks into the motel. And when she does, it's run by this old, old couple. And the, the woman who owns it, we, we'll call her Ma, is mean and snotty and just bitchy toward Elvira. Just thinks that she's complete trash. And then... The guy who is married to her, who runs the motel as well, we'll call him Pa, is like, um, he wants to be embracing. And he is a more, more positive thinking person, but he's always getting shot down by his wife. So anyway, Elvira's told that they are booked solid, super judgmental. But then the old man says, oh, well, no, wait, we do have a room. And the old woman is mad at him for saying that. Now, their granddaughter, Robin, enters and she's wearing makeup. And there's this whole argument between Robin and her grandma about how makeup's not appropriate and you shouldn't be wearing it. Anyway, 
They give her the room, and the old woman demands cash up front. She says, I know what you pinko heavy metal weirdos do in motel rooms. And Robin shows Elvira to her room, but Elvira tells Robin, listen, don't let them get you down. I used to get the same lecture from the nuns at the orphanage. Of course, I was only eight. She asks Robin what's there to do for fun around here, and Robin lets her know the bowling alley is open late, and uh, it gets real wild. I think it's kind of implied that we all know that there's nothing wild about this bowling alley. So, looking for a good time, Elvira uh, ends up at the bowling alley in town. That's um, really the only place to hang out at nighttime because this is such a conservative place to live. It's called Patty's Tidy Bowl. And we meet these two goons. One of them is played by Jeff Conaway of Grease fame. It's Kanicki. Elvira enters the bowling alley and they notice her and they're checking her out. Now she sits down. She's annoyed by them. And we also meet Bob and Patty and they notice Elvira as well. The waitress asks Elvira if she'd like a drink and Elvira asks for a Bloody Mary, but she's told that they don't serve liquor. Do you want a virgin? And Elvira says, sure, but I think I'll have a couple drinks first. Now these goons hit on her and... It's really cringe and really surprising for a PG-13 movie, but Kanicki, I'm just going to call him Kanicki, it's Jeff Conway, uh, asks her for a blowjob, and she dumps their beers in their laps, and they get mad and grab onto her, but Bob comes to the rescue, punching them out. Bob is like this tall, hunky, himbo, handsome guy who Elvira instantly notices. When Elvira introduces herself, she says, my name's Elvira, but you can call me tonight. Bob introduces himself, but Patty comes and she's angry at the mess and she has the hots for Bob too. She kind of gets face to face with Elvira and in like in an imposing and intimidating way. Bob walks Elvira to her car and Elvira explains that she is in town for the reading of her Aunt Morgana's will. Bob says he never knew Morgana, but he admired her spunk. She wasn't like everyone else in the town. We learn that Bob runs the local movie house, but he can only play G-rated movies. And Elvira says, there's nothing wrong with G-rated movies, as long as there's lots of sex and violence. She tells Bob she's only in town for a few days and implies that she would like to spend them with him. And she makes a pass at him. He says that'd be swell. And she closes her eyes and purses her lips to go in for a kiss. And we hear his car door close and he drives away, completely oblivious to her come on. Elvira's confused and disappointed. Now the next day at the real reading of the will, Morgana's staff, like housing staff, so cook and you know, Butler, the housekeepers, and Vincent Talbot are there. So Vincent is this older gentleman. He is played by William Morgan Shepherd, and it turns out that he is her uncle. He's really surprised when she enters because he didn't know that she was coming. He didn't. She's like a surprise relative. Of course, she's super excited, super perky and friendly, and she just wants her money. But Morgana has left her her house and her beloved poodle, Algonquin, and a precious book of recipes. And to Vincent, she leaves the entire rest of her estate and holdings of which there is none. So Vincent is pissed. And Elvira's like, what the hell am I going to do with a house and a dog and a book? Now, Vincent is driving around with his goons and he explains to them, uh, they're driving him, I should say, he explains to them that the book contains more power than you could possibly imagine and he needs to get his hands on it. They pull up next to Elvira, who's walking on the street, and she leans into the window to speak with him. She calls him Uncle Vinny. He hates it. 
He offers to buy the book for her for $50, and she says, yeah, sure, I'll do it for 50 bucks." right as Chastity Pariah walks past, and she is scandalized. Elvira pulls up to the house with a lawyer and discovers that it is a dump. Fun fact, it's actually the set from The Munsters. It's the exterior house where The Munsters was filmed, which I got to see once on a Hollywood tram tour in uh, Universal Studios Hollywood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Falwell, Massachusetts definitely has a striking resemblance to the Universal lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now Algonquin runs down the stairs, and Algonquin is this white yappy poodle. Elvira remarks that she can't stand Nelly little dogs. Now there's a picture of Morgana hanging on the wall. She looks like Elvira, but with red hair. It's actually a portrait of Cassandra Peterson without the Elvira wig. She realizes that she could sell the house for good money if it's fixed up. The lawyer leaves and Elvira looks at Algonquin and says, what am I going to do with you? So she buzzes Algonquin's hair into this cool punk style and dyes like some of it pink and some of it black and he wears a spiked collar and he looks really cool and punked out and she renames him Gonk. Now Gonk hides the book under a couch cushion right as Uncle Vincent arrives and Vincent gets really mad when Elvira can't find the book because he was supposed to buy it for 50 bucks. That night, Elvira is laying in bed and her hair is stunningly like long and flowy and gorgeous around her and there's lightning flashing and it's just really sexy and she hears a voice calling her name. And she gets up and lights a candle and climbs up a spiral staircase and there's still lightning going and it's really spooky. And this is something that I wish the movie had more of is these kind of spookier moments, but... She turns a doorknob and goes into the attic and looks into a mirror and there's a scary old woman face behind her and then she wakes up from her nightmare and instead of looking beautiful and gorgeous like she did in her dream, her hair is wrapped to preserve its shape in like gauze kind of and she's wearing like an Elvis t-shirt and she ends up kicking Gonk out of bed and going to sleep. The next day, the neighborhood kids come over to help her renovate the house. This is my favorite part in the entire movie, I think, because the kids show up and they help her paint her house. It's a montage to the song, You Make Me Want to Shout. And at the end of it, she brings out a a tray of lemonade and the kids show her the house and she turns around and drops it. And we see the house and it's covered in bright, gorgeous Easter color paint. And she, in a shocked expression says, it's fabulous. And I think that's the funniest point in the movie. After that, the town council meets up to discuss what a perversion to the community she is. They decree that all students found in her company will be expelled. Chastity gives her list of sexual shaming insults that I introduced Armando with at the beginning of this, and they agree that they will do whatever it takes to get rid of her. A member of the council comes to appraise the house and comes on to her. And she sicks gonk on him and tells him, just because this house is up for grabs doesn't mean I am. And then no one comes to her open house. She's trying to sell it. And it's super sad. So she has a quick conversation with her manager who says, like, yo, you got to get this money to go to Vegas. She decides to try to find a job uh, to raise some of the money, but no one will hire her. Meanwhile, Vincent's goons break into her house to look for the book, but Gonk's shadow appears on the wall and looks like a giant terrifying dog and barks like a giant terrifying dog and scares them away. 
They report back to Vincent, who tells them to bring him all the records of the town's ordinances. Elvira ends up running into Bob down on the street, and she has tried everything to get a job, and no one will give her a job. And realizes Bob runs the movie theater where they show really rate like G-rated, un offensive movies and she realizes holy cow this is my chance i've got a like you mentioned trunk full of cheesy old horror movies that i can show and horror host for you we get the classic line when a letter from the marquee falls on her head how's your head never had any complaints yet and so she decides this is what i'm gonna do now elvira kisses bob and patty sees it from afar in her car she peels out super mad we cut to Vincent, who enters a secret passageway through a bookshelf in his lair. He has a secret underground devil-worshipping lair, like, under his house, under his office. And this is where we learn that he is a warlock. It's been implied before, but this is confirmation. He starts summoning some forces of evil in an evil-sounding language. And he addresses Morgana from Beyond the Grave and saying that he will become the master of the dark in the lunar eclipse when the moon is drained of all its light. It's coming this week, and lights start flashing, and fog fills the room, and he laughs evilly, and he says, there's nothing you can do about it. So Elvira meets up with the kids at the bowling alley to invite them to her show, but they are afraid to talk to her. They tell her that the principal will expel them if they go to her show. She cries dramatic crocodile tears, and I love this line. She says, if they ever ask about me, Tell him I was more than a great set of boobs. I was also an incredible pair of legs. Tell people to remember me with two simple words. Any two, as long as they're simple. And the kids agree to go support her, and she immediately stops crying, and Patty overhears all of this. So that night, the kids sneak out of their houses to go to Elvira's show at the theater, where she is showing Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, I... <laughs> we have already been introduced to the idea that Patty is the exact opposite of Elvira, right? They both, uh, if, if Elvira wears black, Patty wears all pink. If Elvira is perky and kind and funny, Patty is humorless and curt and snotty. And Patty has an ample bosom, but it's like the wrong kind of boobs. <laughs> Picture like, um, like from the fifties, those bras that made boobs super pointy, right? Mm -hmm. I love the shot where it's Patty's silhouette sneaking toward the theater to sneak in and it's clearly her breasts. And then we see her later and she's behind a curtain and it's just two pointy boobs behind the curtain. But Elvira's show is going to consist of showing Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, sitting on a couch next to the screen, like discussing the movie and making cracks and jokes just like she would on her TV show. And then a fabulous grand performance where she rips off i mean is inspired by the film flash dance so the plan is for her to dance and then pull a bucket pull a cord on a bucket and be covered in gold glitter and the, <laughs> the sequence she she the joke is that she clearly has a dance double when she's doing gymnastics and flips and uh cutting from these incredible you know cartwheels and flips and then to her kind of as she's landing and she lands in a chair, flips her head back just like in Flashdance, pulls the cord, but instead of the gold glitter, we get a bucket of black paint followed by a pillow full of feathers. She has been tarred and feathered by none other than Patty. It's a rather traumatic sequence. A rather traumatic sequence, perhaps a callback to Carrie as well, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> for sure. 
from there, they go back to her place. Two of the teenagers come with as well. And she brings Bob. She's taken a, a, a bath in turpentine, basically paint remover to get it all off of her. And she sends the kids away. She wants her alone time with Bob. Bob is unresponsive to her advances again. He suggests, why don't we go out to get something to eat? And she's like, Bob, no, 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 I got you. We're going to, you set the table. I'm going to take my aunt's recipe book and I'm going to make us something to eat. And goes into the kitchen. And I mean, Armando, do you want to talk about the kitchen scene? Well, it's, um, her recipe definitely helps to deliver one of the great genre moments in yeah. the film. I mean, I actually like that she leans into corny horror films with her own film. You yeah. know, it could have just been a comedy, but she actually does deliver in the supernatural shenanigans of the piece. Like, she's actually committed to this ridiculous storyline of of the black magic and the curse and the legacy and the ring and the, the, the spells and the spell book. You know, it she's not really a witch but you know in this section of the film she is a failed witch getting the recipes wrong and she creates this slimy boogery monster you know that attacks you know due to her cooking recipe and it's actually a very impressive creature it's, it's an so impressive looking in effect yeah um, that like they didn't skimp on the special effects and those moments and they actually play them semi-seriously but with the elvira edge it keep, you keep getting the shots of it snapping its jaws right at her cleavage you know she's she's still playing in elvira's court even when she's adapting these familiar genre elements and that's a, that's something that i enjoy about the film it doesn't and i i will say there have been a lot of critics of hers that felt she was too much making fun of the genre and the films that she hosts and spoofs and i can see how some it might appear that way to some but i actually do believe her heart comes is in the right place and that she embraces the the corniness in a way but also loves it and kind of serves it back and and so i do see her as having an appreciation for you know older genre films and keeping that spirit alive and i think that whole that whole sequence um is one of the best ones in the film so far is you know giving us a really cool ghoulie on screen and um and just playing in that sandbox you know she is the mistress of the dark her movie's gonna have monsters it's gonna have actual threats and moments of suspense and is, uh, is she gonna survive this that's kind of a fun a fun element you know, to have within this film. Agreed. Totally agreed. I, I almost, I, I do wish that there were more of this in the movie. The producers made her add all of the teenage characters in order to be more appealing to young people. And I don't mind the teenagers. It fits, but I feel like so much was cut and lost that the movie could have been a little bit more spooky, a little bit more horror. And we lose some of that, but I'm glad we get moments like this or like when Uncle Vinny is kind of summoning dark forces and, and you know, the wind is blowing in his spooky underground lair and it, it, it's a good blend of comedy and horror. Mm -hmm. 
So after this disaster in the kitchen, <laughs> creating accidentally creating this uh, gremlin slimy creature question mark, they end up shoving it down the garbage disposal. I think she probably used a little too much Adraziba in the recipe, but she and Bob end up going up these stairs to the attic. And in this attic, they discover a letter that is addressed specifically to her. I love the line, gee, do you think it's for me when it's got her name on it? And we get this really cool flashback to telling the story about Elvira's mother. Her name was Devana. Now, the voiceover actor who voices Morgana, who's the one telling this story, is Tress McNeil, who also played the anchor woman at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So the story goes that Devana left Elvira up for adoption with this magic ring in hopes to protect her. We get Cassandra Peterson playing her mother without the Elvira wig. So we've got her natural gorgeous red hair. We get to see her out of costume and uh, well, in another costume, essentially. (laughs) The best part of this sequence is seeing baby Elvira in a little basket. And this poor little baby, I really hope that precautions were taken when putting makeup on this child because I don't know what it's like. Like, Is that safe? I don't know. But this baby has a black buffant wig and Elvira makeup. And it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. I hope that baby still embraces that aesthetic to this day. I want to know who that baby is. That should have been, if I were able to ask a question at the at the panel, it would have been, do you know what happened to that baby? <laughs> she should be doing conventions too. Sure. So, oh, I would totally meet that baby. So we, <laughs> I guess we'd be around the same age, actually. So what we have learned in this flashback is that Elvira is a descendant of a long line of powerful witches. And her mother, Devana, was trying to protect her. And, you know, it, 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 it leads to this discovery of, oh, that quote recipe book is actually a magic spell book. And that's what Elvira recognizes. We then have the lights go out. And I just love the moment when Elvira, <laughs> she starts saying, oh, oh, Bob, I'm so glad <laughs> you feel this way. And it's, you think that she is touching his dick and then the lights come back on and she's got this python in her hands massive snake and she throws it to the ground and it bursts into flames but just the idea this is the comedy world that this movie sits in (laughs) that this python writhing scaly creature could have been a dick like that's the the style of comedy (laughs) we have going on here so next day there is a morality picnic in the middle of town and it's a potluck and there is a band in a gazebo playing. It's almost like a dirge version of some probably old whistling Dixie tune. <laughs> and Chastity Pariah and all of the rest of the town council is there. The husband and wife who own the Cozy Cop Motel, everybody. And they're going through the line for the picnic. And Elvira has placed this same pot on the, on the, the buffet line. She hides in the bushes with Bob to watch what's happening. You know, revenge is better than Christmas. And one by one, these conservative, snotty people start eating this food, right? So when they take the lid off, Elvira was under the assumption that this creature was going to pop out again and that it would, you know, wreak havoc and that would be her revenge. But it looks like just normal casserole. 
Well, it turns out as they eat this, they all start getting like horny, right? Mm. And uh, <laughs> one of the town council guys holds up a hot dog looking at Patty and says, remind you of anything? And she picks up a taco shell and says, remind you of anything? And it's just chastity pariah, bless Edie McClurg, who, you know, her whole career <laughs> was based on this character who, you know, oh, talked like she was from Minnesota and she's very conservative. And she, it turns out in real life was a substitute teacher before she joined the, the groundlings. Was uncomfortable filming this scene, but she sits on a man's face. Is this face taken? And from there, we realize that whatever Elvira concocted is an aphrodisiac recipe and everyone, all of these old crusty mean people go to town on each other <laughs> and it's nuts. I will never get the image out of my mind of <laughs> the woman who owns the cozy cop putting mustard on her husband's ear <laughs> and then sucking it off. It's such a fun scene though. Don't you think? Oh, eating a hot dog in a taco shell. <laughs> Remind you of anything. <laughs> so so good i they, mean for once that scene is the only time when the town elders are likable yeah or i should say lickable lickable <laughs> I, I was an innocent on liquor I, <laughs> I i think it's really this movie does such a great job of showcasing like how much cooler it is when you're just free you know mm -hmm. and em embrace sexuality and embrace fun so Vincent Poltleon walks up to Elvira and he's like, I'll give you a lot of money for this book. And she's like, no way, man. Like, this is not just a recipe book. This is a fairly heir family heirloom. I'm not going to give it to you. And he freaks out on her, you know, and, and that's when he tells her, I'll get you and your little dog too. Well, Patty decides to make moves on Bob and Elvira's not having it. And she pulls, <laughs> pulls them apart and Elvira sasses her, tells her, you know, what does she say? Don't you, don't you ever wear anything else? And Elvira says, yeah, sometimes I like to wear something low cut and sexy, <laughs> but they, uh, they get into an altercation and Patty shoves Elvira to the ground and Elvira, and she starts to kiss Bob. And Elvira stands up and punches Patty in the face. I love that she stands up for herself, <laughs> but when Patty falls, her top falls off, revealing that she stuffs her bra. And the whole town laughs at her. And now she's been humiliated by Elvira in front of everyone. And it's, you know, just if if Patty had any way to compete with Elvira, it would have been this ample pointy bosom. And now it turns out she doesn't even have that. She's as flat chested <laughs> as could possibly be. I'm certain on the close up of her chest where she's covering her breasts, mm -hmm. it's probably a male actor, you know, like a skinny male actor, because there ain't nothing there. We cut to the morale, the, the town council having a meeting and everyone's blaming each other and, you know, oh, you um, tried to, you were, well, you would have wore out a mechanical bull. <laughs> You're just going off on each other, blaming everybody when Vincent enters and points out to everybody, it's Elvira's fault. And we have to turn on Elvira. She's to blame. And he pulls up this old clause in their Massachusetts town, whatever, history book, where anyone who practices conjuring or sorcery or anything like that should be burned at the stake. The charge is witchcraft. And everyone agrees 
with him because they're all sensationalists and they're all terrible people. And so that's the plan. We're going to burn Elvira at the stake. All right. So we're, we're approaching the climax of the film. Now Elvira is now in jail and the cop watching over her won't give her a phone call. And the, the, the kids, the teenagers who are on her side (laughs) burrow their way through the roof of the jail but it turns out it's the wrong cell and they all fall inside. So now they're trapped in another cell and the kids can't save her. Bob comes to visit Elvira. She sends him to go get the book from the house, right? Which he does. But when he gets there, Vincent and his goons um, attack him and tie him up and they take the book. And when he comes to Algonquin, Gonk, the poodle transforms into is it a pit bull? Is it a, I don't know, a big, bigger dog? Yeah. Uh, choose through his restraints. And so Bob is now going to try to save Elvira. They drag her into the town square. They've, they've created this giant stake with like wood and sticks and they're going to burn her. And everyone is so, um, oh, was like zealous about this, right? It's, it's, it's comical to see these people so excited to execute someone. And it's only funny because of the world of comedy in which this film lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cassandra says that this was the hardest day of shooting in her entire career because she had to spend hours and hours and hours. It was three days long. And the whole time she had her hands tied behind her back to this wooden stake, which is uncomfortable. And because they used real flames, she had to be covered her wig and her dress and everything in this flame retardant chemical that she said itched and made her clothes really, really stiff. And so three days of that, plus they used real rain, plus there were children involved and there were animals and a giant crowd. And it was just kind of every possible thing that would make a shoot like this difficult happened at once. But we got the the crowd shouting, uh, chanting, and they've got torches. And there's a moment where the someone's about to light the the is it a pyre? Light the 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 fire. And Patty mm-hmm. stops him and says, "What you're doing is wrong." Mm-hmm. Now Elvira's like, "What?" And Patty says, "You have it'll light faster if you light it from multiple places," and teaches him how to burn her faster. <laughs> now Bob finally arrives, and he looks at Patty. And he uses the phrase, and I love this. He says, you're not a very nice person. And it kind of breaks Patty's heart, but like, what a thing to say. I actually was able to say that to somebody once and it's an impactful sentence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, So it seems as though all hope is lost, but Elvira gets one of her hands loose, the hand with the ring, and she hears in her head, the power is inside of you. It's Morgana's voice. And she aims the ring at the sky and it shoots like a like a, a beam into the sky and we get rain. And so the rain puts the fire out. Elvira gets down and now Vincent has transformed uh, into a scary looking creature basically. And Elvira's running from him, ends up in an alley and <laughs> he, oh, poor Gonk. He picks Gonk up and tosses him into a, a dumpster. Bob tries to help, but he gets the best of Bob. And so now it's up to Elvira to defend and save herself. And she decides she's going to use the ring on him again. But when she points at him, the ring flies off of her finger through the air and conveniently lands on his. 
and now Vincent has the power. There's a really cool chase sequence. She comes upon a cemetery and the gate is locked with a padlock and a chain and she uses her bosom to bust the chain and get through. Mm. And we get this really cool, almost like um, like an old uh, Vincent Price cemetery set and she's backing up toward a grave and Vincent's approaching on her and you know, we we get her uttering the sentence that was said in that black and white movie at the beginning, I'll see you in hell first. And she takes off her high heel and throws it at him and it hits him in the eye or in the forehead. And she's able to escape. She goes back to her mansion and through one thing leading to another, she's backed up against a wall. Vincent's hand reaches through the wall and tries to strangle her, but an ax falls off like a mounted axe falls off and cuts his hand off so now we've got vincent's hand crawling around we've got vincent coming for her trying to get the book the house sets on fire because he's shooting fire through like his power whatever he's got magic fire <laughs> power now <laughs> and uh the, the hand has the ring on it and it's crawling toward her. She stabs it multiple times with a crochet, like a, a crochet needle or a, a knitting needle, gets her hands on the ring and uses its power to send Vincent to the underworld. But in all of this fire, the spell book is consumed and she can't get to it and she can't save it in time, is reminded by the voiceover of her aunt Morgana you have the power inside of you. So she runs out of the house to get the hell out of there. And that's the climax of the film. Next day, Elvira's sitting on the porch. Her house is burned, burned, burned. Bob sits next to her and he's got a neck brace on because, you know, he was injured throughout the night before. And he tells her, you know, I wish that there was something I could do. And I love her line. I'm just not the kind of girl whose dreams come true. I do better on nightmares. And she's super sad. And then the whole town looking like a lynch mob comes toward her. And she's like, oh no, what now? But they have come to apologize. And they realize that they were wrong, that Vincent was evil and worked them all up. And they essentially say like, Robin, the little girl tells her, you're the best thing that's happened to this town. And everyone embraces and accepts her. And holy cow, Maybe things are going to go well for her. The lawyer from before enters just as her car is pulling up. Her car has been fixed. And the lawyer tells her, well, since Vincent died, you're the only living relative. So you get what's left of his estate. And it's a sizable one at that. And it turns out now she'll be able to do her show in Las Vegas, which was the whole reason <laughs> she went on this grand adventure. So we cut to a musical number and this number was originally, they filmed the whole movie. This was the last scene. And then the, the studio said, we're not going to give you the budget for this. And the movie was then going to end with her driving off into the sunset to go do her show. Can you imagine this movie without this musical number? Oh no. It's got everything. If you didn't love her enough, she sings, she dances, she raps and she twirls tassels. <laughs> just, just like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Right, exactly. <laughs> we get this, uh, well, because she says Las Vegas, Las Vegas, Las Vegas. Like she says it almost like Dorothy says there's no place like home, right? 
it's a lavish musical number with sexy men and they're scandally clad and, and it ends with her doing a classic burlesque tassel twirl. I did a tassel twirl routine once back when I was a burlesque dancer and my friend Evelyn made me tassels inspired by Elvira's in this film. Mm, I gotta right. say, like, it's not, it's, it's not easy, but once you get the hang of it, it's actually like a manageable talent. I mean, she's incredible at it, you know? Yeah, she's got the burlesque experience too. She sure does. And so it, it it's a perfect ending. I'm so glad she went into the office of the producer and, and was like, listen, the movie doesn't work without it. And she explained why and how this had to happen. And he finally relented, whether he was tired of listening to her or she convinced him, they fronted the money and we got this great musical number. And it ends on a close-up of her face, signing off in her classic signature unpleasant dreams and that is elvira mistress of the dark armando how many times would you say you've seen this movie oh gosh probably in the hundreds yeah it's I, an, it's it's a comfort film it's a comfort film i don't get sick of it i fall asleep to it it's endlessly quotable it's endlessly mm -hmm. rewatchable you know it puts it's a mood lifter that's a perfect word it's a mood lifter absolutely I love this movie. I love Elvira. And uh, all right, so on Rick or Treat Horrorcast, we have a rating system. A movie is either a trick, which means it's okay, or it's a treat, which means you love it, or it's a smell my feet, which means it sucks. I mean, why are we even talking about this? I think we both know this movie is a complete treat. Oh, this is tops. This film is up there with the top ones. For, for me, I think for a number of people who Couldn't feel uh, inspired by not just the film, but the character and embody that spirit. You know, it gives us a whole spirit to connect with. And uh, I think a lot of people do. And I think that's why it will always be timeless, timeless for people. That's and a great good comedy, never goes out of style. People will always laugh at Chapman. People will always laugh at Pee Wee. People will always laugh. Cassandra Peterson, it, you know, she's in the, the that the, that level of ranks of you know legendary performers who have delivered something so dis a voice so distinct and a character type so embraced. Yeah, that it's with us for history. And yeah. you know, we did have horror hosts before and after, but you know. Her flavor, her distinct mix of all of the elements and talent, just, you know, outright talent that she brings is just unmatched. It's undeniable, for sure. And it remains as strong to this day. And, you know, she remains as active, looking for work, looking for expression, looking for acceptance, you know, and, you know, the, there's constant roadblocks as anyone who's read her book knows and she just adapts to them and works beyond them you know and coming out was putting another huge roadblock in her path and yet she did it and now can go beyond it and uh reach even greater heights you know because ultimately hers her own story and honesty and pride will endure 
and influence others. And so, you know, she's connecting with people still. She connected with you personally, you know, during the weekend. Um, she's been connecting with me for, for decades in unusual and unexpected ways. And I still look for every appearance of hers. I try to watch every single thing she puts out every interview i want to read it i know i'm going to laugh i know i'm going to be inspired um so we're lucky we're lucky that we're still in the time we're still here with elvira you know and i'm like you know at, at a point paul rubens kind of put a lot of his character behind him but elvira is still very much exactly delivering what she did in the 1980s wow you know some people defy age that some people defy times they're timeless and uh he definitely falls into that camp i so. mean she's defying time and age because at 72 years old she doesn't look a day over like 45 it's insane to me how, yeah. she, how she has maintained this like it, it you know is she a witch is she a vampire maybe <laughs> well she's tapped into some kind of magic elixir that I think we all seek and um, maybe it's just being honest with herself and uh, always kind of just the push that she's brought to everything and the truth, you know, she doesn't hide. Well, she puts a lot out there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm really grateful for her and I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to talk about this film and to share your love of Elvira and Cassandra Peterson with my listeners and with me. Will you please remind my listeners where they can get their hands on the upcoming um, Silent Night, Deadly Night novel and also where they can stalk you online? Yes, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night. Get those pre-orders in now because who knows when the paperback follow-up will... Um reprint will occur yeah but you also want that extra chapter and all the perks and these books that stop the killer is putting out is like the games that they're putting out it's top-notch product it's beautiful it's going to be a beautiful edition and yeah. so visit stopthekiller.com to order to pre-order directly and hopefully the books will be arriving in time for christmas and um hopefully i'll have an announcement around that time on the next offering the next novelization official novelization of a favorite film of all of ours if we're listening to this and right now i'm sure it's going to be something everyone knows and loves so um and then i'm you know on instagram as curbula one just armando Munoz, my name that you see on my books for facebook and um as well as on x or whatever <laughs> called with a d my middle initial in there like was on my older books when it was armando d munoz on the cover of hoarder through turkey kitchen and uh now i've just shed the d uh but uh that's where you can find me and then of course i'm very easy to see and tune into online on my show dance darklings every other weekend basically uh second and fourth 
weekends of the month. Sometimes I pop up and do a first or third Wednesday show. But, you know, I do these shows on camera and costume and everything is themed to genre films, including Elvira. I have done three or more Elvira tribute nights where I have, and I've done that live too. In fact, um, during my last live DJ gig, uh, you know, since the pandemic, I've kind of steered my DJing to virtual clubs. And so everybody can tune in on Zoom. So follow Dance Darklings. Um, actually, we're on Twitch as well. We're developing a Twitch audience for people who like to Twitch. But uh, <laughs> I always prefer to Zoom it because then I can see everybody who wants to dance. And that's what we do. We, we're a dance club to live music coming through the virtual space. And uh, I'm sure I'm going to be doing another Elvira show in the near future. Um, Tune in for those shows. They're fun. I have a Friday the 13th show coming on Friday the 13th. Those are always a blast. And I will, I'm going to reprise my Halloween 2 at Haddonfield Memorial set for the final weekend of October. Cool. I mean, if we're, you know, we talk about things that bring us joy. Of course, the genre brings us joy. Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, brings us great joy. I mean, this was really the perfect film. I feel like for me to come up onto your show and talk about <laughs> yeah. because it's a film that has so embodied my own character and spirit as somebody who carts around 35 millimeter and hosts horror films and has just been a constant champion of the genre and who has a one name moniker like you know Pervula you know I'm known as Pervula because I made this short film called Pervula which is on Vimeo you know anyone can watch Pervula on Vimeo yeah. Along my After Midnight and The Killer Crapper. I'm glad you had me on to talk about Elvira and this book, this new book, which I'm so excited about. So I appreciate it. I am too. I am too. And you and your work bring me joy. So again, oh, thank, thank you. you very much. Listeners, you can follow the show on Instagram at Rick Retreat Pod. Uh, I have a YouTube channel where you can currently vote for my Halloween costume this year. Uh, it's Rick Retreat Horrorcast on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Uh, my website is www.rickertreat.com and that's all I got. We'll see y'all later, spookies. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for coming, Rick or Treating. It'd be a real scream if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever platform you're listening on. The show's spooky intro and outro music is a cover of Camille Saint-Saëns' Danse Macabre with orchestrations composed and performed by Lestat von Monlicht. My website, rickertreat.com, is designed and maintained by Evelyn DeVere. The show's social media content is created by my evil minion and social media manager, Stanley Martin. The Rickertreat logo was designed by Philip Romano. Contact information and links to these artists can be found in the episode description. Check them out, they're frighteningly talented. Rickertreat Horrorcast is independently produced by me, Ricky J. Duarte, of Rickertreat Productions. If you like what you heard, tell a fiend. I mean, friend. If you didn't, well, they're coming to get you, listener. <laughs>